This morning, I have the tremendous privilege to open God's Word with you. Uh, Pastor Joe was recently called to fill in for a retreat speaker at a, at a conference, actually back at Black Diamond Camps, Camp Baraka, so right where we were last weekend. Joe is there this weekend preaching the Word for another church for a weekend retreat, and uh, we we're thankful he was able to fill in for them almost sort of last minute. We just knew a couple weeks ago. And uh, it's with that, um, because he's gone, I have the privilege of getting to be here before you this morning, and it is a joy to, to be able to open God's Word with you. Today's sermon, I've entitled, The Gospel Truth. The Gospel Truth. And you'll see why as we go into it. There are not many worse terms that can be affixed to an object than Condemned. Condemned. In 2011, the famous Richmond Cookie Factory was condemned. A once historically rich building in Richmond, Virginia, the pleasantly aromatic cookie factory had lost its ability to be used. Sitting six stories tall, just a few miles north of downtown Richmond, this factory was built in 1927 by the Southern Biscuit Company, who would later be renamed Famous, uh, famous Foods of Virginia. For decades, this building boasted a huge, vibrant neon sign on top, telling the world of the tasty treats being made inside. The magic happened there on the fifth and sixth floors. The raw ingredients were lifted to the top floor, formed into cookies and crackers that were then baked in two double-story brick ovens. The baking trays were continuously rotated with a large crank wheel outside the oven walls. And once prepared, the cookies and crackers were lowered all the way to the basement for cooling and packaging. In 1939, the company became the first officially licensed baker of the legendary Girl Scout cookies. Pretty sweet job. As the home of the Girl Scout cookie, this building at its peak was reported to have whipped out, get this, 640,000 cookies per hour. Per hour. But in 2006, Famous Foods of Virginia moved headquarters, leaving the building vacant. And in 2011, former Girl Scout Cookie Central was condemned. What does it mean to be condemned when you're a building? It means it has become unfit to live in or to operate in per an inspectioner of the Board of Health. Over time, if nothing can be done or if nothing will be done for the building, it is to be torn down and destroyed. That is its fate. And so we see a parallel in the condemnation of a human being. And I'm not just talking about a person on death row. I am talking about a person who stands condemned before God Almighty. You see, every sin pronounces a sentence of condemnation. Every person left to themselves stands condemned. Before God, we are officially condemned, having been inspected and found to have come up short But included in that condemnation, just like for a building, is the guarantee of a future destruction. Ruin awaits the condemned. The two go hand in hand. This is the meaning of condemned. To pronounce a judgment with a necessary and impending doom. In fact, the biblical Greek word for condemn is no different. It typically contains this twofold sentence against the object with no separation from the eventual carrying out of the punishment, of the sentence. And we see, for instance, in Hebrews eleven seven, which reads this, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. 
By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The world was condemned, the passage says, when Noah constructed the ark. This was God's sentence of judgment, telling all they would be wiped out by the flood. He then followed up on that condemnation, as you well know, by drowning every soul and animal that was not on the ark. Noah's building of the ark was the proclamation of condemnation, and the corresponding punishment was soon thereafter carried out. And so this twofold meaning of condemnation, it's important for us to grasp, because every person left to themselves would be condemned. Every person left to themselves is condemned, rather. Each person is officially condemned by God because of sin, and they await the necessary and impending punishment. And so an empty, condemned building like the Richmond Cookie Factory, it feels the effects of a condemnation pronouncement, right? The broken down walls, moldy drywall, ivy-covered ceilings and walls, and unending cobwebs bespeak the fate of a condemned building. Humanity feels the effects as well. Hopeless thoughts, the bloodshot eyes, the tireless striving for something more and the miserableness of life and the day after day all reveal the feeling and weight of condemnation upon each person. Humans groan under their sentence of condemnation while they await their impending doom. And so when we come to Romans chapter 8, as we do this morning, there can be no more appropriate thing on our mind than the severe penalty of sin. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, if you're not already there. Romans 8. In fact, in every chapter of Paul's glorious letter to Romans, sin is discussed in depth. Now, someone might ask me or our Pastor Joe, why are you always so focused on sin? Why do you keep bringing it up? Why can't you just focus on positives like God's mercy or grace or something? Well, I'd reply that we're trying to imitate Paul. For sin was such a real issue to him that he could not help but talk about it time after time. But the beautiful thing about Paul and what I would love to emulate is that he never leaves you wallowing in your sin. He always brings you up. That's what I hope to do this morning. Well, to get you up to speed in Romans as we dip into chapter 8, let's do a quick outline of chapters 1 to 7. Just a quick outline of 1 to 7. In Romans 1 to 3, after some initial greetings in chapter 1, Paul lays out his case that every single man alive is a sinner, both Jew and Gentile. Absolutely no one is exempt. We are all sinners. He continues in the end of chapter 3 and through chapter 4 to explain that God has made a way to be saved from sin and its penalty. There's a way to be saved, and it's through faith alone in Jesus Christ, not by works, but through faith alone. He uses Abraham as an example in chapter 4, and this fantastic news spills into chapter 5, where Paul spells out that, that those who trust in Jesus have peace with God. Ted mentioned that earlier in his opening, that we have peace with God. Christ died to reconcile us to God and redeem us from Adam's curse. Now we're at peace. Chapter 6 goes on to call believers in Jesus to live as his followers, as his servants, not following sin, not enslaved to sin. Christians are to put off sin and to live for righteousness. And that's our calling, our joy, and our goal. 
But chapter 7 then comes at you like a dose of water in the face. It grabs your attention. It surprises you and it frustrates you. It's like, I don't even like the reality that chapter 7 talks about. It's, I, I like it about as much as if you were to take a real bucket of cold water and throw it in my face right now, drenching me suit, tie, and microphone. Right? You see, chapter, chapter 7 explains that the Christian wrestles with sin. We're not sin-free. The chapter first talks about the law, the Mosaic law, explaining why it was good but not able to save. Rather, the law of Moses being righteous in its requirements actually condemned to death those who were not able to meet its standards, which was everyone. Not able to meet its standards. The holy law reveals the greatness of our sin. And Paul begins to wrestle with his sin nature in light of the law in 7 verse 14. While while Paul has a spiritual side to him that wants to do right, there's this fleshly, worldly side to him that wants to do wrong, and it's a battle within him. Verse 15 says, Paul, Paul cries out, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And Paul is speaking here as a Christian. Having just proclaimed that all Christians should live dead to sin, putting off sin, in chapter 6, he now confesses that even he struggles greatly to do that. Verse 24, he cries out in agony, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? And so though saved, Paul still wrangles with his sin nature in his fleshly body. Now a handful of theologians out there claim that Paul is writing in chapter 7 about before he became a Christian. This view is prevalent enough that I need to bring it up. And they say this, this chapter 7 was actually Saul as a Pharisee. And I think they think that Paul, the Christian, could never have actually felt this way. But, but I and many others object to this view. For one, Paul gives no hint that he's referring to something from his past. And, from his past. Indeed, all the verbs are in present tense, not past tense. Second, chapter 7, could any unsafe person say what Paul said? I know that nothing good dwells in me. Could an unsafe person say that? Or wretched man that I am. Or furthermore, could an unsafe person say, I delight in the law of God in my inner being? I dare say no. And third, it's perfectly in keeping with the context and flow of Romans for Paul to speak of himself now as a Christian yet struggling with sin. Any person who says it's possible for a Christian to not struggle with sin is arrogant and hasn't truly considered their own life. We all struggle with sin, even though we're saved. And so Paul, having explained in this letter thus far that all sin brings death and that through faith in Jesus Christ, man can have peace with God and that that new relationship with God should drive us to put off sin and live for righteousness, Paul in chapter 7 recognizes that nobody can do it perfectly, not even Paul himself. Because we are still in the flesh. And a well-worded anonymous saying puts it this way. Though we are dead to sin, sin is not dead in us. And so that's where we come to our text today in Romans chapter 8. I know it's a big introduction, but it's hard to just drop right in to the middle of a theological argument without giving some background. And so right as we approach our passage today, Paul is agonizing about the sin in his own life. And that is appropriate for him to do. Do you wrestle with your own sin? Do you hate the weight it puts on your soul? I sure do. 
Sometimes I can hardly bear it when I think upon it, how I'm, I'm, just, I'm capable of still sinning against my God. And so often, it's right and it's normal and it's expected for the Christian to wrestle with their sin nature. And in fact, I'll go a step further. If, I would say that if you're not wrestling and if you're not at times frustrated over your sin, maybe you're not even saved. Unsaved people don't care about sinning. It doesn't bother them. Sin only bothers them if they get caught and have to face the consequences. And so if committing sins is no big deal to you and doesn't bother you that much, check yourself. Search and see, as Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13.5, search and see whether you are in the faith. Well, for the many of us here this morning who can empathize with Paul, in chapter 7, who are burdened and frustrated by their sin that remains within their Christian lives. We need the gospel truth of chapter 8, verse 1. So look down at your word of God. I'll read chapter 8, and I'll go verse 1 through verse 4. Look at the text with me. Chapter 8, I'll be reading in the NASB. Chapter 8 begins, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is the word of God. Let me pray that he would bless us as we look into this word. Father, we'll take some time now to look into your holy word, God, and I pray that you would use the Spirit to illumine our hearts and minds to the great truths within. Father, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Bless this time now, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here is, is so beautiful. This is the gospel truth. This is the gospel truth. You are not condemned. You are not condemned. Every word of scripture comes straight from the mouth of God. And believer, God says here that you are not condemned. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Like a cancer screening that turns up 100% negative, there is not a trace of condemnation upon you. And that's exactly what the text says. The Greek sentence actually begins with the word no. It's the first word in the Greek, and it's not the normal Greek word for no. It's a far more emphatic word. It's the idea in it of nothing, none whatsoever, not any. And Paul also puts it outside the normal word order. As I said, it's at the front. Separating no from the noun that it goes with, separating it and placing it at the front is a way to emphasize things in the Greek. And so Paul puts it a special word for no, and he puts it at the front. He could not make it any more emphatic. He is saying none, not any condemnation. He's double emphasizing it. There's not any condemnation whatsoever. That's what he's saying. Zero for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul couldn't make it any more clear. Friend, are you burdened by your sin? Is there something in your past 
that keeps attacking your conscience? Are your sins constantly in your face, making you doubt God's love for you or even your salvation? Does the devil remind you of all your faults and failures? Is he accusing you, driving you away from the cross of Christ? Whereas for the unbeliever, every sin committed is condemnatory. For the believer, no sin committed is condemnatory. Nothing you have ever done will ever be hold against you. The one person who could point their finger at you with the power to punish you has cleared your name. You're all free from sin. If you're living under the guilt or the weight of sin, friend, drop it in Christ. Drop it. The song goes, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Sinclair Ferguson said, There is no weakness in the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ. What a glorious truth. What a glorious, blessed truth. We need to own that. We need to own that truth. We need to preach it to ourselves regularly. And so chapter 8 begins with this incredible, life-giving statement of freedom from condemnation, the condemnation we deserve. This is really just the culmination of the first seven chapters of Romans. In one sense, everything builds up to this. Paul has spoken of freedom from slavery to sin and already being released from the law, but here he brings it all and condenses it into this one statement. That's why you see it start with therefore. He's reaching back to everything he said. And so the culminating truth in 8.1 is the glorious gospel truth of all gospel truths for the sinner. And it initiates what some call the greatest chapter in the Bible. It begins, no condemnation. The chapter then ends, no separation. And in the middle, no defeat. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no separation for those in Christ. And in between, there is no defeat. One pastor, I can't recall who, I remember hearing this a long time ago, said that if he were stranded on a desert island and could only have one thing with him, it would be the Bible. Go figure, right? He's a pastor. But if he could only have one book in the Bible, it would be the book of Romans. And if he could only have one chapter from the book of Romans, it would be chapter 8. It is that important of a chapter. Chapter 8 says, nothing can condemn you, nothing can separate you from God or his love, and nothing can defeat you in your walk with him. It's all here. It's helpful also to note that in chapter 8, there's not a single command. There's not a single imperative in the entire chapter 8, in the Greek and hopefully in the English. There's only divine truths to be understood and to be grasped. It's not a chapter of doing, it's a chapter of knowing. It's a chapter of knowing. And oh, what a comfort this chapter can bring to this sin-wearied soul. And so we start with the pinnacle statement in verse 1. And the next three verses are integrally connected to it. They present three more truths we must internalize as they buttress and support and explain the gospel truth of verse 1. Just as the tallest tower in the world, the Khalifa Tower in Dubai, needs an incredibly deep foundation to support it, this most glorious truth needs an incredibly deep explanation to support its grandiose claims that you are not condemned. And our text does not disappoint. Let's look at our second truth. You are set free from sin's power. Verse 2. 
Now, if you look at verse 2, the very first word there, and I think most translations, if not all, is for. Verse 2, the first word is for. It's an important conjunction. It, it tells us that it's joint con, uh, directly to verse 1. And it's translated for in most translations. It could just as easily be translated because. Because. And I'll use that word from now on. It's the exact same thing. However, in the Greek, just like English, there are two possible meanings of because. Interestingly, we always think about because as a, a giving a reason or a cause, but there's another meaning, and it's to give evidence for a statement. For example, let's say, uh, let's say I said to you, I must have broken the speed limit this morning because a cop pulled me over. Right? This statement gives evidence that I did break the speed limit. The cop didn't cause me to speed, but his actions towards me were evidence that I did speed. We use because, right? But on the flip side, let's say I said, I think I broke the speed limit this morning because I was running late to church. This statement gives a reason or a cause. My running late is what caused me to speed. Now, just as a side note, for the most part, these are hypothetical statements. I did not actually run late to church this morning. You can figure out whatever else happened there. But uh, both are legitimate uses of because. Both are legitimate uses of because. And when we come to verse 2, we have, I believe, an evidential use of because. It, giving evidence to support a statement. Not a reason or a cause, but giving evidence. So verse 2 is evidence that there is no condemnation for us. And verse 2, look at it. Verse 2 says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Again, this is not a reason or a cause, but it's evidence that gives the grounds for verse 1. And Paul's been talking about this already in, in the book of Romans, and it's fairly clear what he's saying here. It's fairly clear what he's saying. Just as God the Father does not condemn you, so the Spirit comes in to your life and sets you free from sin and death. This is evidence that we're not condemned. And it's, there's this marvelous reality here in verse 2 which, from which we are wonderfully liberated from sin and death. And if, we're going, and if we're liberated from sin and death, then we have strong evidence that we're also not going to be condemned. Right? If you're set free, how are you also going to be condemned? It's not going to happen. And so a great question is raised here. If we look at the text, you notice the word law happens a couple times in there. The word law pops up. Well, why this law language? Why, not, why doesn't Paul just say, for the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from sin and death? Why bring law into it? Follow with me closely. I don't want to lose you. For, well, for, for one, Paul's been using law language throughout chapter 7. And so in one sense, he's playing with words here, as many good writers and good speakers tend to do. But secondly, there's a, there's a, there's a meaning of law I want to bring out. And look, look in, if you have an NASB Bible in front of you, there's one in your pew if you want to pull it out. The word law is sometimes capitalized. It's some, the L is sometimes capitalized. And... Um, there's, there's, a couple, there's two different meanings for law. When, when the NASB capitalizes it, they're trying to hint to you that it's talking about the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. When it's not capitalized, it's saying this, this is a different kind of law. It's not the law of Moses. It's just any other law. And so you'll see in verse 2 that both of these laws are not capitalized. And I believe they got that right there. And actually in verse 3, you see it capitalized right at the very beginning of verse 3. It's talking again about the Mosaic law. And so what, what, what Paul's doing here in chapter 2, he's referring to a different kind of law, not the Mosaic law. He's using wordplay of sort. 
Now, the law in Greek doesn't really have it so much in English, but in Greek, the word law can have this other meaning of principle or, or power or binding authority. A power, a binding authority. It's hard to get in English, but maybe a child could understand it when uh, maybe mom comes into their messy bedroom and lays down the law, commanding them to clean up, right? Mom didn't actually draft up a written law, but she flexed her mom muscle, showing her power and authority over her child. That's kind of the idea. My mom's smiling at me right now as she thinks of times she's done that before. That's the idea, power, binding authority. And so when we read the law of the spirit of life, this is, this is the power of the Holy Spirit that comes into a believer at salvation and conquers not just sin and death, but conquers the law of sin and death. That is, the power of sin and death. The power of the Spirit comes in and conquers the power of sin and the power of death. Death has lost its sting. We know, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty five. Sin has no dominion over you, Romans 6.14. And because of this, we can know for certain that we are not condemned. It's incontrovertible evidence before God's court. The spirit that fills you by his power, by his authority, has set you free from the power and authority of sin. Isn't that truth also amazing? While this is evidence to, to prop up the claim in verse 1, it on itself is rich and marvelous liberating and relieving. Believer, sin has no power over you. For you have the Spirit of God living inside you. The Spirit has changed your heart by his awesome power. Before Christ, sin used to be appealing to you, right? You formally enjoyed it. You participated in it willingly. You may have feared sin's consequences, but you didn't fear sin itself. But when the Spirit entered you, in his power, he gave you a new heart. There's no longer joy in sin. There's no longer an appetite for sin. What what was once appealing to you is now appalling to you. Let me give you an example. It's readily apparent when you go back and watch a movie for a second time that you haven't seen since you were a non-Christian. As a non-believer, you maybe enjoyed the film, thought it was funny and a good all-around movie. And on that basis, maybe a decade or two later, you've now come to Christ. Maybe this movie pops up free on Netflix and you decide to watch it again. But this time you're appalled by what you see. The language in it turns you off. Crude scenes, dirty jokes. This film is now repulsive to you. Perhaps you can't even finish it. What happened? The sin you once enjoyed is now horrendous to you. The power of the Spirit has overcome the power of sin. Puritan Thomas Chalmers calls this the expulsive power of new affections. The Spirit's given you new affections and it now expulses is the power of sin. You now love God's law. But why do I still sin? Why do I still sin? We may rightly ask. Look back at the end of chapter 7, verse 21. I want to read a couple of verses there. Chapter 7, verse 21 reads, this is Paul speaking of himself as a Christian. Verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Now these these very verses, they point out some positives that Christians feel, right? I want to do good, Paul says. You feel that? 
I, I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. Christian, that's you. But then you hit verse 23. And we're reminded that inside every believer is still this, this different law, this different power, this power of sin. The verse even says it, it's making me a prisoner of the law of sin. Prisoner of the power of sin. Wait, what? Which is it, Paul? 722, 7.23 or 8.2? Am I a prisoner of the power of sin or am I set free from the power by the Holy Spirit? Which is it? Well, in short, the answer is both. And just think for a second, what a true picture this paints of the person you really are, of the person I really am. On the one hand, I am a slave, a prisoner for sin, has such control over me that I cannot live a sinless life. I cannot live a sinless life, even though I am in Christ. Think of a couple of verses, Matthew 6, 12. The Christian is instructed by Jesus to pray, forgive us our sins, which is acknowledging that we still have sin in us. 1 John 1, 8 says, if we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sin is still in us. But on the other hand, I am a free person and sin has no power over me to make me do its ill wishes. Sin cannot stop me from doing what is right. Sin cannot stop me from resisting temptation, from trusting God, from rejoicing in God, and even from working righteousness in his name. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is just a beautiful verse on how God provides escape for every temptation that comes at you. Right? No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And with each temptation, he will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. This beautiful verse reminds us that we are free from sin's power because the Spirit makes it possible for us to say no to any sin that comes at us. And so we know that the power of sin cannot, make, cannot keep me from experiencing the peace of God, the peace of God that transcends all understanding. To quote William Hendrickson, there is for me as a Christian this sense of victory over sin, which I possess in principle even now and will possess in perfection in the future. It's sustaining me in all my struggles. The power of the Spirit sustains us now in all our struggles. And so there's no contradiction here. While sin sadly remains in our fleshly body, by the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, you are truly set free from sin's power. You are truly set free. It's an amazing thing. And Paul gives us this this verse 2 as evidence to back up the no condemnation statement that we love in verse 1. But he then gives us a reason in verse 3. We get our third truth. You are absolved from guilt. Look at verse 3. The very first word there is again, for. It's again, for. We have another because statement to lead off this verse. But now I believe we have the other meaning of the same word because. It's not about evidence, but now we get a reason, a cause. Verse 3, I believe, gives the reason for verse 1 which brought about our no condemnation. This is the foundation. Let's look at it. I read verse three. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now what we have here is a very, very theological verse. 
Now, don't get scared away by theology. Your entire soul hangs on theology. Spending eternity either in heaven or in hell is based upon your theology. So don't get scared away by some details. Don't let it scare you. Now, like an archer zeroes in his focus on the bullseye, I want to focus on the center point of this verse and then expand out to the outer rings. And so the key phrase in this verse, grammatically, is a word to which all else is supplemental. The key phrase is, he condemned sin in the flesh. It's the last phrase. It comes at the end, but it is the central phrase. Or you might use, if you're an English teacher, you might call it the main clause. Everything else stems from this. And so the whole reason that you are not condemned for your sins is because God condemns sin in the flesh. God condemns sin in the flesh. That's the bullseye. That's the center. Cling to that. Now, what does that mean? Well, the rest of the verse explains it. That Paul puts it at the end. The rest of the verse is explaining it. We need to see what this means, that God condemns sin in the flesh. And it begins with this first phrase, what the law could not do. Now, again, if you have the NASB, you'll notice the word law is capitalized. It's signaling you this is the Mosaic law, and they're absolutely right, I believe. We're talking again about the Mosaic law, pulling it in from chapter 7. Now, the Mosaic law, it says here, could not do something. Now, Paul made it abundantly clear in chapter 7, if you were to follow follow his argument there, and I wish I could take you back and preach you a sermon from chapter 7. But in essence, Paul clearly spells out there that the Mosaic law was incapable of bringing righteousness to men. It was incapable of bringing the righteousness that we need to be saved. Our whole problem is that we are sinners by nature and by choice. And friend, the only way to be saved from hell and to spend eternity with God is to be perfectly righteous, perfectly blameless, and perfectly holy, just as he is righteous, blameless, and holy. We know that we cannot make ourselves righteous and holy, but neither can the law of Moses. The law cannot do it. Romans 3.20 says the same thing. It says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. That word justified means declared righteous. By the works of the law, no flesh will be declared righteous in God's sight. Therefore, we know that the law does not make a person righteous. Now, why is that? Why can't the law do it? Verse 8.3 goes on to tell us, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, pause, Weak as it was through the flesh, it's not the law's fault that man couldn't become righteous through it. It's man's fault. We are in Adam, born of the flesh, born in sin. And because of that, the law cannot save you. It is powerless to make a man righteous, though he try his absolute best to keep it. It's powerless. And so on the heels of this really damning statement on the heels of the statement. We come to this wonderful statement in the middle of verse three, that what the law could not do, that law, the Old Testament law had been in place for 1500 years. What the law could not do, God did. God did it. God, rich in mercy and love, knowing man could not be redeemed in his own merit, took the initiative and did what the law could not. He made a way for man to be made righteous and holy and blameless. Now what, what a benevolent, loving, and kind and praiseworthy God we have that he did not leave us to wallow in our sin, to wallow in our suffering and to perish forever, but instead he made a way to make 
you righteous. It was the only hope of salvation you had, and God did it. What did he do? Look again at verse 3. Right there in the middle. God did what the law could not do. Middle of verse 3 by, quote, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Wow. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's how every believer receives no condemnation. In verse 1, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin so that you could be made righteous. You could be made righteous. There are three things to mention here from these last two phrases. Three things to mention. It says God sent his own son own highlights this close relational connection. This act of sending was near and dear to God's very heart. There is emotion involved on God's part. Sending his own son. Second thing to mention, what does it mean by in the likeness of sinful flesh? This phrase has caused many pages to be written. Many pages have been written on this phrase. Let me boil it down. After reading those many pages, let me just take the conclusion and boil it down. Jesus was not sinful, but he did come in the flesh. One commentator it gives it, uh, helps us see it kind of by do some rewording tools. He basically, if Paul had said, in the likeness of flesh, dropping out the word sinful, he would have denied Jesus' humanity because he's not really true flesh, but he's in the likeness of flesh. But Jesus had to be in the flesh. That's important. But if he left out likeness and Paul just said, Jesus came in sinful flesh, he would have denied Jesus' sinlessness. Which again, if Christ is not sinless, he cannot be righteousness for us. Rather, Paul must say, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus really came in the flesh, and his flesh was just like the flesh of all others, whose flesh was all sinful, though his was not. And so this tricky little phrase speaks to the perfection of Christ. For he came born of the seed of a woman, Genesis 3.15, and not of Adam. He was not in Adam's lineage as the rest of mankind. So he was free from sin, though still in the flesh. And this is important, as you'll see. And also the third, this next phrase right here. And in the NASB it says, and as an offering for sin. And you'll notice if you have NASB that as an offering is in italics. NIV says similar thing. It's not in italics there. They don't do italics. And uh, the reason NASB does italics, maybe you didn't know this, probably, hopefully you did, it's their way of telling you that it's not in the Greek text when it's in italics. NASB has that kind of cool thing. It's helpful. And you'll notice that as an offering is not actually in the Greek text. And uh, sometimes this is very helpful and supplies things we need. Like if you look up in verse 3, you say, God did. That is in italics. God did. Paul, it's like Paul was so excited to get to the good part of verse 3 that he forgot to put a verb there. And so we just have to supply it. God did. Right? What sin, what the law couldn't do, God did. And so they add that there. It's, it's helpful to add that. And, but here I think they go a little too far and adding as an offering in, in there. It shouldn't be there. The ESV and the New King James, I believe, have it right by leaving it out. Now, why, why do some put it in? I just got to explain this real quick. Um, because the phrase, for sin, 
can legitimately be translated as an offering for sin. And that's how the Greek Septuagint, which is the uh, Greek version of the Old Testament, translated from the Hebrew. That's how they translated the word, uh, the word sin offering. They translated it the same way, for sin. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, on three occasions in this one book, there is all, this is also the clear translation. That, this, that this same, these same words in the Greek should be translated as an offering for sin. But, but every time for sin is translated as an offering for sin, both in the Septuagint and those three times in the book of Hebrews, the context is clearly speaking about sacrifices. And so we take the context to infer it. And, and there's no doubt about it in those cases. But if you look in Romans 8, have we mentioned sacrifice anywhere? Has Paul talked about sacrifice at all? No, and he does not talk about it if or at all in the rest of chapter 8. There's no sacrifice in the context. And so rather than, rather than adding this, I would say, and many commentators agree, translate it simply and straightforwardly as for sin, which makes perfect sense in this context. And it's not that Christ did not act as a sin offering. We see that elsewhere, especially in Hebrews. But that's not the point of this verse. It's not the point of this verse. What this verse is teaching is that Christ came to earth in the incarnation for sin itself. For sin itself. He came specifically to deal with sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, He who knew no sin came to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Friends, Christ came specifically for sin. Do you think sin is not that big of a deal or that Joe and I and others shouldn't make a big deal out of it? Friends, sin is the entire reason Christ came to earth. If we ignore sin, we must ignore Christ. There's no incarnation if sin is not a big deal. Sin is a big deal. Christ came for sin. And through Christ, God condemns sin in his flesh. Why? So that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He did it in his flesh, the flesh of Christ. Friend, can't you see? That's the gospel truth that Christ came sinless in his flesh. Perfect son of God went to the cross and on that cross, God slew him. God condemned him. God's full wrath was poured out on his perfect son. All of it, all of it. The Lord was pleased to crush him. Isaiah 53, 10 says, he condemned his own son for you. For you. So that you might become the righteousness of God. We shall never be clothed with the righteousness of Christ except we first know assuredly we have no righteousness of our own. It's all of Christ. You have no righteousness of your own. You need Christ's. Apart from him and his righteousness, you stand condemned. If this is you, repent of your sin. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust him for salvation and God will clothe you with the spotless righteousness of Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. That we might become 
the righteousness of God. And when Christ's righteousness is put on you, at that moment, truth for you have fulfilled the law. You have fulfilled the law. This point is very short. In verse 4, Paul is essentially tying up a loose end in his argument coming out of chapter 7 concerning the law of Moses. Verse 4 says that in condemning Christ for us, the righteous requirement of the Mosaic law is now fulfilled in us for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Mosaic law, having been fulfilled by Christ, is now viewed by God through the substitution, through that imputation, is now viewed by God as having been fulfilled in us. What you could never do, Christ has done. The law is fulfilled and God sees you who are in Christ as having fulfilled it. And so, for those who have fulfilled the righteous law of God, not on their own merit, but relying fully on the merit of God's own Son, there surely can be no condemnation for you. The law is fulfilled in you. There is not any condemnation possible. And there's no more powerful truth in the world than this. So release the sins that hold you. Release your anxiety over your wrongdoings. Christ has conquered all. So I ask you, in all solemnity and earnestness, what will you do with this magnificent truth? What do you need to change in your life because of God's great mercy to you? What sin do you need to eradicate from your life knowing that your sin is the very reason for Christ's death? What devotion do you need to multiply to the God who would slay his own son to redeem you as his own? What amount of love do you owe to the Savior who gave his life for yours? What are you holding back? from the God who has given you everything except the condemnation you deserve. Friend, there's no better time to commit your whole life to God than right now. While the iron is hot, while the memory of this passage is fresh, forsake all and follow him. Let us pray. Father, into your hands I commit your word. Use it for your glory. May our hearts be forever enthralled with your great love that would send your Son to be condemned for us. Jesus, most precious, holy, righteous name we pray. Amen.